Let's pray. Dear Father God, as we work on this concept of connecting, we know that this is a 360 degree process. Lord, that this call is for us to recognize the fact that you are the creator and the great designer. The fact that we are made in your image and in your likeness and have the ability, unique among all creation, to understand the creator himself. And Lord, being in community yourself, designing us to live in community with you, you have placed us amongst a group of like-minded individuals. And you have given us the opportunity to connect to one another. To live life together, to journey together, to lean on one another. And Lord, you have placed us as a community within a world that despite the intentions otherwise, doesn't hold that same value. And you have called on us with a responsibility and a vocation, regardless of what our job is that we earn income, to seek the lost, to follow the one out of the hundred, to share the truth of who you are. And Lord, as we come before you this morning, we thank you that you continue to redeem and you continue to work that exile, that failure, that punishment has never been the last word that you have given to us. So long as, once again, we turn and we follow you. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for all of these gifts. And we pray that we would use them to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. There's a statement that I've always kind of uh, really enjoyed is this concept of it's worth your weight in gold or it's worth its weight in gold. The idea that an object has such immense value that it is equivalent in worth to being weighted in gold. Now it might be as simple as like a Kleenex in a time of need or it might be some rare element. But one of the ones that's always surprised me the most as at one point having weight or value equal to in gold, is salt. Salt back in ancient times was considered in some places to be valued equally as its weight in gold. Uh, Particularly around when the uh, Phoenicians ruled the Mediterranean seas. We're talking about uh, right along a, a tropic When it comes to a fishing community, this aspect of being able to preserve uh, the catch and all of the commodities that were needed, that salt was so important, it was the only way to ensure that the labor and resources that you have would hold long enough for you to get an income back from them. At one point in ancient civilization, the production of salt was actually regulated and controlled because the substance was so important to the economy, much like our banks today only print a certain amount of money and for a certain part. And in fact, even uh, linguistically, the word salt has links to the the concept of soldiers and salaries. And it was said that even at a certain point, salt was considered part of the basic payment program for being a soldier 
as a part of the military. Now, how many of you would love to get a portion of your salary received in insult? Yeah, that, I wasn't, I was actually going to be worried if somebody did put their hand up in, in that situation. Talk about something that today that had, has very minimal value for what it is. We're talking about buying pounds for pennies in the grand sense of it. I remember watching a TV show about, a couple of years ago about um, a nuclear blast going off and clo- killing all electronics in North America. And this one city, a very small town, became uh, an epicenter in the community post-electricity because it was built on a salt mine. And it, it really weighed for the value for me of how, how things have really changed over the years. And how what used to be the case can't be guaranteed. And at some point, someone did own a salt mine and thought, I am going to be rich forever. But uses have changed. We have refrigerators. We have ways to preserve our food. Salt is a basic seasoning, and in some restaurants, far too liberally used. But despite the use not necessarily changing, the value has changed because the desire for it has changed. And I think this concept of how, how drastically salt has changed in the world we live in is very similar to the value that church holds for the people who don't go to church. The reality was at one time in Canada, we're talking about 75 years ago, 7 out of 10 Canadians attended an evangelical or Catholic service on a weekly basis. Fast forward 30 years after that, it is down to 3 out of 10. And now we are at a decimal of a percentage. And maybe for you, you actually remember those days where the entire community woke up on a Sunday morning and the entire community went to church. Uh, I know many of us have noticed uh, the vast number of churches that are in our areas and how at one point they were all built out of a need. A Sunday school class that began that then decided to educate the adults at the same time, so began a Sunday service and an evening service, and, or Sunday service and a Sunday school, building buildings at the closest place because back in those days people would not travel 45 minutes or 20 kilometers to get to church on a Sunday morning. And I know even then, over the years, churches have been closing their doors due to lack of attendance and buildings are falling into disrepair. Because the reality is, is that the value of church is no longer considered the same by the community and the culture that we live in. And at one point, being open and being present was a voraciously successful model of evangelism. To have a building in a neighborhood and to have that building open on Sundays at one point in Canada guaranteed a healthy attendance to the ministries of that church. And I really don't think that's the case as much as it used to be. For us, for the church today, existing and being present as a building in our neighborhood is no longer a guaranteed or viable model of growth. The reality is is that even the concept of membership in churches is less valuable than it used to be. The fact that this was the church that you were born into, grew up in, and eventually went on and was promoted into glory through. The fact that, once again, 
Nowadays, you can attend a church and go sometimes weeks, months without contributing to the kingdom purpose of it. In fact, even by today's standards, even by the standards of the town of Markham, having a church of 600 people plus on a weekly is absolutely amazing. In Canada, we, in America, we often get caught up with this idea that the bigger of a church you are, the more successful of a church you are. And therefore, we get really excited at the prospect of being big, being numerous in terms of our ten- attendance and our weekly participation. And as time has gone on, that number, that attractive, you've made it number has been shrinking in this area. To the point where we think of a church of 600, we're like, wow, something amazing must be going on in that community. But did you know, based off the stats can information that's available, if you drove 15 seconds south, east, and west from here, if you consider the houses between McCowan and 48 north of Castlemore, there are 9,438 people that live in that block of real estate. And in that block of real estate, there are, to my knowledge, three churches. Yet we don't have a 3,100 people attendance on a weekly basis. And that's not due, in fact, to the fact that the message that we have has lost its value, that salt doesn't serve the same purpose that it did. But at some point, the way in which we are perceived by the community around us has changed, and they no longer see us as being meaningful, impactful, particularly relevant or important to the way in which they live their life which leaves us with a really hard question to answer. How do we work to connect to the outside world when they don't see what we have to give as being of value? How do we as a church function to bring something that is important and life-changing when people are not looking for importance or not believing that what we have has the capacity to change lives. It's like trying to sell snow up north. It's like trying to sell sand on a beach. Unfortunately, this is the way that the church is perceived by the Canadian culture around it. And when we look at Scripture, and when we look at the New Testament church, we realize the situation that they were in was very similar to what we're in now a religious minority that is not particularly well-respected or well-known. Yet in those days, there was was at least a more common language and a more common willingness to talk about faith issues and belief and the eternity that exists. But to a point, the challenge that we have presenting us today of how to connect to the world around us is actually the exact same as it was 2,000-plus years ago. And I think this really needs to inform and shape the way that we read our New Testament because then it becomes a literal case study of experience, of strategies, of principles, of how to exist to bring something valuable when value is not valued, to bring something relevant when people are not searching for it. 
And thus this morning we are going to open our Bibles and we are going to dive into the book of Acts. Uh, And we are going to uh, take a look at the story of Paul in Athens in a couple different segments right here. Uh, So as we are diving in this morning, uh, we will be looking at starting in verse... Sorry, just getting my digital version up here. Starting in verse uh, chapter 17, verse 16. We're not going to read the entire segment here, uh, but we will jump into different points. So this is a story where Paul finds himself in Athens, and Paul has a specific um, routine that he goes through when he gets into a new area. Much like uh, being a visiting professor at a university, Uh, As Paul finds himself in a new area, he heads to the temples, he heads to the synagogue, and does his speaking and preaching and teaching within the community of the body of believers. But when his lectures are done, when his discussion times are done, Paul disappears from the religious scene and dives straight into the community itself. Now, this may have had uh, some impact into the fact that Uh, Paul had a career that kept him busy and that those at the temple were not necessarily his best patrons in terms of what that was. So his life by necessity required him to get out and to exist in a place that was not the church bubble. And Paul explores the city and shows us an amazing example of how to connect effectively in a relevant way, and in an impactful way to a community that was not looking for the church in that moment in time. And this this process that Paul does follows a couple really simple and really basic steps. First thing that Paul does to do in this process is he gets to where the people actually are. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogues with both the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. I don't know how many of you enjoy public speaking with people you know, let alone doing it in a setting where you don't know people. But Paul, in this very equal focused capacity would decide to remove himself from the church bubble and get into the place where people were actually living and existing, the marketplace, the place where people would go to day in and day out to get what it was that they needed. And there in those moments, he used what he had in his heart to share a message. So the question becomes for each and every one of us, where is it in your life that you are disappearing from the church organization and surrounding yourself with individuals who do not believe the same things you do? I know when I started going to Bible college, this was a dynamic that they talked about a lot because they called it the fishbowl. It is really easy when you live on campus or close to campus, when you are studying the Bible, when you are spending time studying and writing papers outside of it, that the amount of free time you have is not very large. And if you're volunteering on the side, it becomes really easy while you're attending Bible college 
to end up with zero non-Christian friends. Where everything that you do in terms of people you see, places you go, and things that you attend is strictly within the Christian community and you totally remove yourself from the rest of the world that God has asked you to reach. Like being a goldfish in a fishbowl, swimming around in a circle, totally removed from the rest of the world around you. And I know even as we've been talking about as leaders and in our leadership over the last four years about what we'd like to see and do as a church, I know that there is a reality that we are almost overworked. We're overworked because we see a need and we jump in to serve. But the reality is, is, and I've heard from some of our leaders, from some of our congregation members, and I've said it before too, that by the time the day gets done, by the time the volunteering gets done, by the time the family needs are met, I have no energy left to get out and meet somebody who doesn't know Jesus and actually journey life with them. Because I'm at the church building four nights in a week. Because we have small groups and Bible studies and fellowships and discipleships that we do. If it's not something we're actively thinking about, that we need to get out and be where people are, we will not get out to be where people are. Now, some of us are blessed with the opportunity, like our kids are, to go to school and to be in community with other kids their own age who don't go to church. But if we're not careful, we will very quickly find ourselves in a place where we don't have those outlets anymore. And Paul, in his ministry, being a traveling leader of churches, it would have been so natural for him to say, well, this is my focus, this is what I'm good at, I'll go plant here, take a break, get enough money to move on to the next place, plant here, take a break. But even Paul saw the necessity of being where people were. So I ask the question again, where is that place in your life that you are actively living out your faith in a non-Christian context? For me, it has to do with coaching baseball. Now, interesting thing about me as a kid, I hated team sports, uh, particularly because I wasn't good at them. I was always the kid that dragged the team down, that missed the last kick or couldn't skate well. So I did uh, karate and we did skiing and I avoided team sports my whole life because I hated the community and always disappointing that community. Well, now, being a parent, my kids have decided to get into softball. Logan is going into his fifth season in softball. I know nothing about softball. So, by virtue of knowing nothing and have nothing of value to contribute, I coach softball. (laughs) And I hate it. (laughs) In all honesty, I don't enjoy it at all. I don't know the skills of the game. I don't know the rudiments. But this is a place where I have that I actually get to meet parents with kids the age of my kids. Now, last year, I was coaching two teams on two different nights a week and miserable about it. But once again, recognizing that this is important and the Bible leads us to do this, there was a little boy on Marley's baseball team. If you ever want to try herding cats, I will let you know where to come. 
And he, his parents were uh, separated, and he was living uh, between his parents. And while he was at his mother's place, his father's house burnt down. Uh, and many of you might have seen it. It was up on Main Street in Stouffville, just uh, east of Park Drive. And talking to the mom, she was like, he had a backpack worth of stuff, and that was it to his name. Little four-year-old, nothing left but literally two changes of clothes because everything was at his dad's place. Now, that was a neat opportunity to support them, and we did support them as a church, supported them individually, and to actually journey with them a little bit in terms of what their needs were, and we actually got the chance to talk a little bit about God. Don't know how the WSSA felt about this. Hopefully none of them are watching. Just kidding. But once again, I never would have had that opportunity to show a blessing, to show love, to show compassion if I didn't force myself to get into a place that, yes, I had the skills to do and actually be a Christian presence within a non-Christian context. And once again, it's so important for us to recognize the necessity of existing outside this bubble. And as we look at what Paul did, being in the marketplace, being in the community, earned him opportunities, earned him respect, and earned him a reputation to be able to actually speak Jesus into that neighborhood. Which is why we, we did the lesson that we did with the kids. I don't know your friends, only you know your friends, and only you're going to have that opportunity and for those of them who go to a school that is surrounded by kids who do not know who God is, where teachers are not allowed to speak about it, it's those moments that we've got to learn to recognize the importance of and to jump into them full force no matter how uncomfortable that they make us. And Paul, in this world, he learned the way that people live. His profession was a tent maker, that he would make, sew, and repair tents. And in doing so, he would meet people in the world who would have never donned the doors of the synagogues, who never would have found themselves in a context to hear who Jesus was. But Paul used his position to learn the way the world worked outside the Christian community. And this provided him, this once again, this opportunity to earn this reputation, to earn this identity. And he earned the respect of those around him. And what I think is neatest is as Paul was doing this ministry in the marketplace, it provided him opportunity to get invited into new community. Through this passage, Paul gets invited to something called the Aeropagus, which is like a philosopher's club in that area where they, a bunch of people would meet together and they would discuss the way the universe works, the way uh, society works, moral ethics and reasoning and struggles. And they did this, believe it or not, for fun. And Paul obviously through his work in the marketplaces met somebody, made an impact on somebody that was unique enough that that person said, come with me over to the Aeropagus because I'd love for you to see that world. 
Imagine your non-Christian friend saying, hey, come out with me to my book club. Come out with me to my baseball team. Come out with me to Tim Hortons with some of my friends. I think you would really like to get to know them. And I think maybe they'd really like to get to know you. So as Paul is getting into this, this place where he has been invited into based off being in the community, he now has to think about how he's going to share this message with people who have zero history of Christianity, of Judaism. How is Paul going to talk about the truth of who God is with somebody who has no shared history, no relational connection? And we're going to take a look starting in verse 26 of how he does that. From one man he made all nations, this is in the middle of his speech, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And this is where it gets really interesting. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So in this moment, Paul is telling the story of God in his own words, based off his experience, and then he draws examples from the pop culture of the day. He quotes a, a very well-known Stoic philosopher that everyone in that room would have been able to recite that poem because it was so popular and so well-known. So Paul, in discussing and in bringing the truth of Jesus, starts bringing in non-Christian examples, non-Christian materials, something that people already know, believe in, and have value in, and he marries that with this gospel message. And it actually worked. In that moment, he struck an emotional chord with individuals there by using the things that they valued most and giving it new purpose and new meaning. Paul would go where the people are. He would engage the world around him in a way that he understood it. And then he would use what he learned as leverage for sharing the gospel. And I think this is more than just Paul seeing a quick moment uh, of uh, intelligent dialogue or debating. I think Paul has pride him, prided himself on becoming informed on the way the world works around him. It shows a deep sense of concern in learning how to speak a language that people will understand. It shows a concern that if they think this is important, then I'm going to learn it enough to understand it because then it gives me a relational credibility to be able to stand on and share the truth of the gospel. Because the reality is, if you don't know the culture you're trying to really reach, you have no likelihood on your own of being successful in engaging it. I mean, that's missions 101. You have to learn about the culture that you are going into. You need to learn the rules of engagement, how the game works before you can play in a way that will actually garner and earn you respect. 
So for us today, the question becomes, how are we going to understand the way in which we're perceived from the outside? How are we going to strive to exist in that and learn enough about the way the world works that we can speak in a way that's intelligent, informed, and actually impact the people that we're trying to reach? Because if we manage to land on an emotional note for somebody and speak about the things that they find value in and draw parallels with Jesus, they will be all the more likely to be willing to respond to that message. And I know many of us really deeply pray and desire to see that happen as a part of this church body. Arthur's talked about it, the concept of, uh, of our pews being filled, of being shoulder to shoulder with new believers. And I think, and in the first half of what we've looked at today, we need to recognize what that will actually require us to do to see that happen. But the next question I have is, how would we respond as a church if we actually experienced an acts response to our gospel message? As a church, as individuals, as the Mark Missionary Church body, how would we react if over the next 14 days, 100 new people came to this church? When I say 100 new people, I'm not talking um, transfers from other churches. I'm talking about 100 of you have somebody in mind who does not go to church and you manage to convert them in the next 14 days through the Spirit's work and they've come here and we hold a membership class in the next two months and we double in size. It sounds amazing and I think, I think that's, that's the goal of what we would all love to see. But I honestly think that that would be a devastating experience for many of us at this church. And I mean devastatingly negative. How drastically would the way we do things change as a church if we doubled overnight with people who didn't see things the same way that we did? How much would that change the culture of our church to grow in the way that God asks us to grow? in the way that God paints for us that is possible to grow through the work of the Spirit. The reality is we know we need to reach the world and we know we need to invite them in to be a part of the body. But what happens when that actually happens? And what structures do we as a church have in place to be ready to receive that type of blessing I know when, when we're blessed financially that's a really easy thing to respond to uh, in terms of how we give when we're blessed with resources that's easy enough because it gives, it's something to give away you have to give one to someone who doesn't but how, is we, how are we as a church ready to receive the blessing of new believers into our body because the reality is, is we, just like every church in this area, we have a hard enough time connecting to the people in the room. We have a hard enough time connecting to the believers 
that we share a pew with, but we disagree with. And I think for many of us at some point in our life, and maybe even presently, you can picture somebody at church who you would just kind of pause and let them walk by ahead of you, or you'd make sure you sat on this side if they were sitting on that side. As Archer's been talking, and we've been talking as leadership of the value of connecting to each other, it's not just because we want everyone to get along, but it's because we want to build, we want to see a community built that people would have a desire to be a part of. That we want a community that is based off showing love and space and appreciation for each other. To allow each other to live in your gifts that are different, your style preferences that are different within the body well enough that when somebody comes from the outside who's really different, then we'll be wise enough to give them the space that they need. That they don't feel ostracized, that they don't feel disconnected, that they don't feel awkward to this community. The questions that we need to ask to our, ourselves are how do we connect to the outside world and in all honesty, those answers to that question are a dime a dozen and will be unique for each and every one of us and not particularly that difficult but the question that we need to follow that up with is how will we receive the people who come into this community and what is the culture of the church what is the culture of this body of believers is it one of conflict and gossip Or we complain about each other behind the backs of others? Or we tear people down where we don't make space for someone to be different than we are? Or is it a desire to be unity and peace while leaving space for a multitude of differences? This past summer, I took a course in my doctoral degree called Intercultural Leadership Competencies in Ministry. And we looked at this concept of what does real multiculturalism look like? We even took a a test that we answered like 130 questions about um, things like, I am, on a scale of one to five, I am uh, good at making space for people with other languages. Uh, Scale of one to five, I am comfortable in scenarios where uh, I don't understand the traditions that are taking place. And out of the whole test, then it would grade you on a scale of how, how gracious you were to this concept of multiculturalism. Uh, in the program, we unofficially called it the racist test, because very cl- quickly you found out how unintentionally, well or poorly, you make space for different cultures. And I scored about where I expected to be, a little, little below as all tests. I thought I was on the better end of it. I'm middle to just above. And it was amazing to watch the people in that class just get emotionally destroyed when they realized how much cultural baggage that they had in their community. And we looked at this concept of multiculturalism, and the more we looked at what real, authentic multiculturalism looked like, the more uncomfortable everyone in the class got. And I'm going to read you some of the statements that, uh, that came from those definitions. So what multiculturalism looks like for me means... I know I will need to change my behavior to adapt to this new culture. Dealing with conflict is not as straightforward as I might imagine with someone of a different culture. 
Number three, I am beginning to feel at home in this setting, yet I do appreciate things about my own culture. Number four, I am not nearly as intimidated adapting to this community as I used to be. And when we look at this concept of multiculturalism and look at this concept of a, of a body of believers that's truly multicultural, it says here there's an intentionality to reflect unity in diversity by celebrating the culturally diverse people that make up the church community. Although the common language of the, would be of the host culture, English or French or Cantonese, for example, there would be opportunities for people of different cultures, cultures to participate and shape the way the community is formed in both worship style and in ministries. The leaders of the church should represent the cultural diversity of the entire congregation. Leadership in such churches usually takes far longer time to deliberate and make decisions in order to have consensus than represents the diversity of its membership. And I think what's really important for us to recognize as the church today is that we have a certain way of doing things, a certain way of speaking, a certain way of dressing, a certain way of presenting ourselves that is just as disconnected as the world across the street as if you were to go to a place where the language is entirely different. If you were to hop on a plane and go to Italy, or if you were to hop on a plane and go to Taiwan, that is how drastic the cultural difference is from what the church has become today to how the way the rest of the world functions. And if we're not careful by valuing our sense of tradition, we will pull ourselves farther away from the rest of the world and make ourselves more irrelevant than we ever have been before. There's a video I wanted to show this morning, but uh, it uh, was nine out of ten parts uh, language appropriate. But it's uh, done by this uh, website on, that does humor and whatnot online. And what they did was they invited a bunch of non-Christians into a panel discussion to talk about Christian terms. And they said, what is a love offering? And the non-Christians would discuss what they thought a love offering was, which their response was romantic in terms of what they guessed that was. They asked them what it meant to be washed in the blood. And the first thing that somebody said, that makes no sense, that's not possible. And they went through all these different definitions and way that we speak at church. And everything that they came up with was absolutely entirely off base from what it actually is. Because we as a church, we've coined terms, we've come to understandings that are ways that we talk about our faith that make sense to each other that sound ridiculous and kind of like a cult sometimes to those who are outside of our sphere and community. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we living, are we speaking in a way that we are presenting ourselves as entirely irrelevant to the world that we're trying to reach? Are we creating space for the people who are not a part of this body to come into it and engage where they are in a redemptive process? And this, this can be in terms of how we're clothed physically, the way that we dress, 
I remember when I got hired here, I asked David, uh, what do you want me wearing on Sunday mornings? And he said, I wear a suit. I don't want you to wear a suit. And I was kind of like, okay, that, that's, that's not what I asked. I asked what I'm supposed to wear. And his whole point was that I am going to be relevant to the people who want and value and desire a suit to be worn at church. And you are going to be relevant to the people that they only put on a jacket when somebody dies. And that's their understanding of what a suit is when someone dies. This aspect of presenting ourselves physically in a way that we can connect to the world around us. And when I say physically, I also mean emotionally. That we don't present ourselves with this air of uh, emotional perfection. That our lives don't have to be all together. And that we are not superior because we know the truth. But we are gracious and humble in recognizing that we know something that's worth sharing. We talked a little bit about the way that we speak this Christian code and language and recognizing that it's important to make sure we know how to explain our faith to somebody who does not have the same history and experiences that we do. That's exactly what Paul did in the marketplace and in the Areopagus. And thus, his sermon was based in poetry. So how many of you are ready for a Robert's message next week on Celine Dion's version of the gospel? I'm kidding, that's not his plan, but would that make you uncomfortable? Fill in Celine on with whatever you want. But using culture as leverage to share the gospel? Using the world around to bring parallels to who Jesus is and why it's so important? And finally, in terms of this concept of look, in terms of our facility and Archer's talked a little bit about the yellow lights um, more than once. But this aspect of what does the facility that we have resemble and look like? And I had a friend come to this uh, church a couple years ago. Um, Non-Christian person came because uh, I invited them and said there's really neat thing happening over here. And I, I sat down with them over lunch and asked them some questions in terms of like, so what was it like? I, nobody knew they were my friends, so it was like a little secret mystery shopper experiences. And I asked them like, what do you, what do you think about the facility? And he said, your sanctuary looks like a funeral home. I don't know why that was his association. And if this looks like your living room, I'm really sorry if that's offensive. But once again, from an association perspective, having never grown up in church... The feeling that he got in this room was morbid in terms of decor. And if Tim Hortons needs to change their whole restaurant every five years to sell relatively the same coffee, I think we need to be wary of what images that we present without entirely being aware of what it is that we're actually presenting. And whether that's just a different color, whether that's a different shape, It has to do with how accessible would somebody feel coming into this facility having never been to a church before. Would they feel out of place? Would they feel uncomfortable? Would they feel like the guy who wore a hoodie to a wedding that everyone is wearing suits to? Because if we're really, really valuing this concept of connecting to the neighborhood, we need to put ourselves in their position to see how they would see us to shape how then we respond and reach back across the table. And I know within 
the truth of who Jesus is within the blessings. We all want to be a part of an Acts church where thousands come in a day where we experience exponential growth, where people are freed from sin and bondage and find peace in their hearts for the first time. And as we're reminded of this goal and what it requires us to do in terms of a process of how to accomplish it, we also as a church really need to spend some time thinking, so then what are the steps that take place after it? Will we pull as a culture even tighter to our own traditions, whatever those are or aren't? when the world around us is changing and retreating deeper into its own self-understanding? Or will we be a body of individuals that are wise enough to use everything that is at our disposals in terms of music, books, poetry, movies, television, culture, art? And are we going to use our knowledge of what people have built to point to the fact that there is something greater that is available? Will we allow ourselves to become informed enough that we can speak with a sense of intelligence, a sense of authority, and a sense of being informed to the person who has never come to a church before? Because I believe that for each and every one of us, whether we realize it or not, God has already put one of those places for us. God has your Aeropagus, your marketplace, already prepared. It's a question of are we going to be wise enough to recognize it and faithful enough to step into it. And when God does his work, when believers come to a truth of who God is, when people give their lives to Jesus, which is not our responsibility, that's what the Holy Spirit does, are we going to be sensitive enough sensitive enough to receive them in a way that accepts them and leads them to a continued growth in Christ? I think that's the hope for us as all as a church. That's the desire, once again, that we would receive with as open arms of love as Christ did while being incarnational in ministry by being the light, being the salt, being the truth of Jesus where nobody else is speaking it. When we read through the book of Acts, we see what God has done and we know that he desires to do it again. And he desires to do it through this facility and this body. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you we recognize that you have gifted so many things for us. And Lord, it's through your name, through your power, through the peace that you have, that all of these things can be accomplished. So Lord, allow us to have eyes that see, ears to hear, and a heart that will follow the leading that you make. In your name we pray, amen. We do all for the name of Jesus.